about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. One very simple thing to tell you this morning, that God wants to use your social life to save this city. Our God wants to use your social life to save this city. Now, there's two objections that have raised in two groups of people in the room straight away. The first is the people who are thinking, what social life? <laughs> Between the work and the kids and the, and the things and the other things, there is no social space. <laughs> But I think anyone in any life even has moments, even 30 seconds, even a minute in their week when they are out in our city in a social space. It doesn't matter how big your social life is. Whatever it is, go on to use it. The other group of people are the people who are like me, who have more books than friends. And who want to say that my personality means this is really not me. And yes, I spend more time talking to dead people in books than live people. And so I understand that. But whatever whatever personality you have, and whatever social space you may find yourself in, God wants to use your social life to save this city. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 9 is leading us to today. Now, I want to paint this case in the extreme just to get you you going. (laughs) Get the vision in your brain as we get started. Um, There was a man named Dominic Vlam uh, who lived in Paris with a little group called the Little Brothers of St. Francis. They lived in a community together and they served the poor and they preached the gospel daily. That's how they operated. One day, uh, Dominique, uh, after visiting the doctor, realized he was terminally ill, which was awful, and the community mourned. It was then, he's 54 years old at this point, uh, it was then that uh, he decided to leave the community uh, with the blessing of the people around him, his brothers. Uh, And he took up a job in a factory He became a night watchman. He spent all his night working uh, just so he could earn enough rent to rent a little space in a a Parisian slum. And what he did during the day after finishing a day of work was went and sat in a park all day. And what this park was, uh, it was the place for the has-beens, the drifters, the winos, the oglers, the dirty old men of Paris. And what he did is he sat there every day, listening to their stories, laughing with them, sharing life. He didn't say anything, he just listened. So curious was his presence there each day and how obviously different he was, obviously led to the point where they asked, what are you doing here? (laughs) And what are you about? He then told them about the love of Jesus that drove his love, that he had been accepted in Christ and how he wanted them to come home too. People who witnessed this season of Dominique's ministry described that after that moment where he started sharing who he was and what he was about, that the whole park changed. That the leering stopped, the dirty jokes ended, and a community of men started to be transformed. It's quite a remarkable thing in quite a disturbing part of Paris. 
Now, I find stories like that uncomfortable because I feel like they're asking something of me that maybe I'm not willing to give. What I see in Dominique is someone who put all of his last ounces of freedom at the service of the God he loved. And that is a big call, throwing all your energy after that. It takes a complete renewal of mindset. But I think as we look at 1 Corinthians 9 today, and the God who wants to use us to save his city, that Dominique isn't such a bad example. Because what we see in Paul today, following on from last week, is an example of someone who uses their freedom not for themselves, but for the sake of the gospel. And for the sake of the God they love. And that's what God is summoning us to today. As we look at 1 Corinthians 9, I want to look at three things. I think Paul throws up for us two obstacles we have toward living the life that maybe someone like Dominic lives. And then one glorious opportunity to take a hold of. Two obstacles, one opportunity. Now the first obstacle you see as you read this chapter, in our hearts, as we read Paul's heart, uh, is we realize that one of the obstacles is the story we tell ourselves about our freedom. The story we tell ourselves about our freedom. Now you are bombarded daily with a soundtrack about freedom. So much so that if this wasn't the word of God and we weren't gathered in the power of the Spirit, this passage would be a whisper into a hurricane about freedom. We have been told daily that Paul's first words, am I not free, is a mantra for living where we take the ridiculous number of life choices that we can have in our world that none of our ancestors could have about living and eating and working and being and relationships and use all of that freedom for the sake of our own self-fulfillment. We tell a story to ourselves where we are a hero and our freedom is for the sake of us. That's a story that our culture screams at us and it runs under the onto the, the soundtrack of our hearts. Paul, however, is different. And what you see here is his own apostolic picture of how to not use your freedom for yourself. What you see here is him cataloging his list of rights, and it is fantastic. Uh, he, he talks about how he's free and an apostle, how he's seen Jesus. That's a good trump card for someone. I've seen Jesus. He told me to go do something. Um, and then he starts listing the rights he should have as an apostle. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about how uh, there are other, in verse 5, there are believers uh, who are gospel ministers who take on a wife and they travel with their wife, which is, seems fantastic. And Paul doesn't do that. Also, there's lots of other people who are paid for the ministry that they have. Him as an apostolic minister should be paid for what he does. And he gives all these examples of why that should be so. He talks about soldiers who don't just go on and march in an army for free and you know people who plant vineyards and don't eat the grapes and you know shepherds who need milk. And, and then he starts talking about ox from the law in Leviticus and how even the, the oxen in Israel were commanded, you're supposed to let them eat as they work. And not only that, the, the priests when they served in the temple later on in verse 13, when they gave sacrifices to God, they were permitted to have some of that food for themselves. And so Paul is cataloging this case of how 
gospel ministers should receive payment from the gospel ministry that they do. He even says in verse 13 and verse 14 that uh, the Lord commanded this. In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He's just painting this massive, broad portrait of um, a truth that actually I think this church knows quite well, that you guys support me and Roger and, uh, and, Roger and, and Sally in our ministry. And I want to say thank you, because uh, you, know, you make ministry happen through obeying verse 14. So thank you. Um, and this is the way that the Lord has made it, that those who do ministry uh, should get money so they don't have to work and they can just teach the Bible and lead people to Jesus. So thank you for supporting us in our ministry. But Paul isn't talking about that here. <laughs> Paul makes a catalogue of his rights to demonstrate that he refuses to use any of them. Have a look at verse 12. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says we have this enormous right, and I'm an apostle, and I have an infinitely more rights than that. But I refuse to use any right if it gets in the way of the gospel. Rather than cataloging his rights and then saying, I'm going to use these for my fulfillment of self, he then goes on to mention the gospel seven more times in the passage. All of his freedom is not about him, but about the Lord who has bought him. It's not about his power, but God's power. Not about his comfort, but people coming to know the comfort that they can have in Christ. In verse 18, he says more. What then is my reward? Just this. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so not make use of my rights in preaching. You see, Paul refused to accept payment from anyone in the Corinthian church because he felt that it would obstruct his message of the gospel. In the ancient world, uh, there were systems of patronage and uh, kind of scratching each other's backs so that if you received a payment, you were in debt in some way back to that person. And so for Paul to receive payments was to enter into some social arrangements that could then constrain him preaching the gospel. And so for him, he'd prefer to make tents all night than receive money from anyone because the gospel is free. It doesn't cost humans anything. It costs Jesus everything. The grace and forgiveness of God as he turns wrath away from us and onto his son comes to us free of charge. And so Paul says, I can't accept money because my gospel is free. And I would rather suffer loss and sleepless nights making tents amongst the poor of this city than hinder that being known. He throws all of his freedom after the gospel of Christ. All of the little things for the sake of the big thing, the glory of Jesus and the knowledge of his son. You see, the story we tell ourselves about our freedom will affect how God can use us in his city 
for his sake. But I think there's another obstacle that's thrown up in this passage to this life. And that's actually the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. The story we tell ourselves about ourselves. This came to me recently when I was watching a movie. Have you seen the movie Creed? It's kind of rocky, but not rocky. Uh, African-American kid. Uh, I saw it on a plane, right? It's a plane movie. It was quite good, so you should see it. Um, the movie Creed opens with this African-American boy in an orphanage fighting his friends. And then uh, the story moves on, and uh, he realizes he's the son of a very famous boxer, and he's taken into this mansion and grows up in a mansion. Then one day he leaves the mansion, goes to Brooklyn, gets this crummy hotel in a bad part of town, and starts showing up with, at a gym and starts fighting people. All the way through this movie, you're thinking, what are you doing? Why do you fight? Rocky comes on the scene, starts training him, gets him a heavyweight bout with this uh, crazy Irishman who's very tall and very big. And he, he takes on this fight, and you're thinking, why are you fighting this guy? You're probably going to die. Uh, and all this way through this movie, there's this string of, why are you fighting? It takes till the very end of the movie when uh, he's in the last parts of fighting this Irishman he can barely see anymore. And Rocky's looking at him, kind of wondering whether he should let him go out again. And says to him, why do you want to do, do this? And he says, I've got to prove myself. Rocky says, prove what? That I'm not an accident. In the, aden, the end, Adonis was driven by the fact he was an illegitimate child. And his boxing career was really the only thing to prove that he was not just an accident. His identity wasn't just some career path. It was the thing between him and oblivion. It was the thing that made his short span of life on the planet mean anything at all. As I watched this movie, I was thinking, that's not a bad picture of everyone in the modern age who grows up in a story where everything before you is accident and everything after you is just darkness and you have 70 years of life to prove that you're not an accident, prove that you're more than just blackness and nothingness, justify your existence. You see, the story we're told by our culture is that who you are is the reason and your justification for existence. And that's when all the little freedoms and the little stories about our career and ourselves and our family suddenly take on gigantic proportion of significance because they are the thing that proves that we should be here at all. You see, if you tell yourself that story, of course you throw all of your freedom after your self-fulfillment. But what you see in Paul is something astoundingly different in verse 19. His identity is secure in a way that means he can throw all of his freedom after the salvation of others. Verse 19 is the, the beautiful little gem in this chapter that you can just meditate on this week. He says this, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone 
to win as many as possible. You see, such is Paul's understanding of his identity. Such is his understanding of his freedom. That he is free not to use his life for his own sake. He is more free than anyone in our culture even thinks they are. He is so free that his whole life can be slavery. Because this is the reality of the Christian. You are so free. You belong to Jesus and, and he is Lord of everything. Not even death can touch you anymore. You belong to no human power, no human structure, no obligation. You belong to nothing but him. You are set free from everything. You are freer than anyone in this planet knows. And yet that frees you for a new purpose. All of a sudden, your status and your identity is so secure that you need no more freedom for yourself, that you can throw it after everyone around you. That's what you see Paul doing here. Now, an ancient slave, part of their job description was kind of cultural flexibility. Uh, you know, if you were uh, conquered by uh, the Roman army in Asia, uh, you'd have to leave your Asian home, be brought to a different city in Turkey or somewhere. And what you'd have to do is leave your cultural customs behind and take on the cultural customs of the house that you belong to. And so when slaves were sold between households, they had to throw away the cultural heritage of the last household and take on the cultural heritage of the new household. Right? That was part of the job. They couldn't serve their own culture. They had to serve the culture of their household. And this is why what Paul says here makes sense. The kind of slavery he's talking about is cultural flexibility that was very common in the ancient world for slaves. You would take on the culture of the people that you were serving uh, because you didn't belong to yourself, you belong to them. Now, what Paul says here is pretty insane in verse 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. Now, it's worth uh, remembering for a second that Judaism for Paul is not a new winter coat. Judaism isn't just an adolescent phase he went through. Judaism was Paul's deep cultural narrative. He was circumcised on the eighth day like a good Jewish boy. He went to the top university and studied under Gamaliel uh, in, a, in, in Jerusalem, became uh, a top lawyer of the law. He vehemently opposed the Christian church. His entire career path and identity was wrapped up in Judaism and the law. And yet what you see here is somehow the freedom and identity he has in Christ has just pushed that to the side. He's had a complete renovation of his identity so that really Judaism for him is just what a, you know, the same as a, a slave would take on the culture of a household to reach that house and to serve that house. So that's Judaism to him now. That's the law to him now. It's not his identity. It's something he uses to reach people. And we have cases of this in Acts where he commands Timothy, one of his young protégés, to get circumcised because there were lots of Jews around and they were worried about that. And he says, just get circumcised, doesn't really matter. But we want to reach these guys. And so let's go in line with the law for that sake. You see, Paul's identity has so been renovated that he now sits loosely to all his cultural values. So that culture is now an instrument of freedom for the sake of the gospel. 
the story he tells himself about himself is fundamentally different. Now, there's lots of stories of how this works out in missionary culture, and I'm sure uh, Malcolm could tell you some better stories later about this. Um, uh, but one of them, that I, a story that I've read when I was younger, was of Hudson Taylor, a great missionary to China uh, in two centuries ago. And when he went to China, uh, English missionaries were, could only go to the port towns. They could only go to the edge of China, uh, to where the, the English merchants were. And what Hudson decided was that uh, to get in further into China, he'd have to do something a little bit more radical. And he became one of the first missionaries uh, to throw away his European culture in a way. He dyed his hair black, got it plaited, left all his clothes behind and dressed like a Chinaman from then on. Much to the scorn of everyone European around him in his culture. And it was this is, a, this is not a small thing, right? He's throwing away the, the cultural identity he knows to take on a different cultural identity for the sake of Christ. He was then able to travel throughout China and did an incredible work for the sake of the Lord. He was only able to do that because the story he told, the story he told himself about himself was different. His identity in Christ was firm. So they're the two obstacles. The, the story you tell yourself about your freedom and the story you tell yourself about yourself. But what is the opportunity? Well, I think the opportunity that the gospel gives to us, the freedom that it gives us, the identity that it gives to us, is to use the things that matter least for the one thing that matters most. To use the things that matter least for the one thing that matters most. To take on a mindset of salvation. Paul says to the weak in verse 22, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. He uses all the little things that no longer matter for the sake of the one thing that now matters. People coming to know the Lord Jesus. His whole mindset uh, has shifted. So what is it? how does this land for us? How is this an opportunity for us in our city? How does this lead to me saying that God wants to use your social life to save this city? Here's how this works. I think the great distance between our culture and the gospel in our city is just the growing social distance between church and everyone else. We're at a stage in our culture where people will no longer just walk into church one day. That day is gone and done. This was around home to me when I was in uh, the Bank Hotel on King Street one time, and I met a guy named Dan. He works in construction in the city. And uh, we got talking, and that was great. And we, ha- uh, he's, you know, I, I get to say, I'm a pastor, and then they get to say whatever they want to say next, right? <laughs> uh, which is great and awful, at the, all at the same time. <laughs> And we, we started, he studied a bit of Western philosophy, and so we were talking about how you know things. And we were talking about Descartes, and we are throwing stuff around, it was great. All my dead friends were coming to the fore. And, uh, you know, he doesn't know what's happening at this point, because at uh, some point in the conversation, I just recited Luke 1, 1 to 4, about how, you know, the gospel is for the eyewitness testimony and stuff. We started talking about historical knowledge and how Jesus is historical, and he's not, you know, Descartes, and he's not... Um, can and he's he's a different type of knowledge and you can come to know him. It's a great conversation. 
at the end, I said, do you want to hang out sometime? He's like, oh, no. <laughs> um, he said, no, 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 I, I don't want to come to church. I was like, I don't mean come to church. I mean, talk to me. <laughs> Have another beer with me. Let's talk about this again. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I can do that. And one of those moments where I apparently wasn't as much of a, much of a freak as he was expecting. <laughs> but it clarified for me the point that he was never going to walk into church. And here Luke 1, 1 to 4 read. But in a pub across from me, he did. And that his journey was never going to start by walking into our church one day, but only with me being out there with him. And that's because the distance between our culture and our church has lengthened. And that means that your social life and the decisions and the freedom that you use and where you use them and where you eat and what you eat uh, for and what you eat with has become the bridge to eternity in our city. It's become the way for people to come into the kingdom. You don't take coffee breaks. You take catalyst breaks for the gospel. You don't take lunch breaks, but you launch things. Because people aren't going to come in our driveway. They'll meet you in your apartment block. They won't meet Jesus over morning tea, but over lattes at your local cafe. Your social life and the way you use it has become the bridge to the gospel in our city. God wants to use your social life to save this city. Use your social freedom, not for your sake, but for the sake of Christ. Now, where I think this starts is simple. Choose one place at one time and one person. One place, one time, one person. Roger Bray has shotgun Brewtown at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day. <laughs> I've, I've witnessed this. Uh, but choose a social, one social space at one time and one person and start to pray. Because God wants to use your social life to save this city. Now, I don't want you to go out here with guilt. Guilt isn't going to help you here. But joy will. Join what Christ has done. And let me go back to Dominique to close. Because uh, one day he, uh, he didn't show up in the park. And sadly he died in his little Parisian slum apartment. And he had a massive funeral. 3,000 people showed up. But they found on his desk his journal uh, as they were cleaning up. And one of the last things that he penned was this. All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my word and witness. If he wants it to, my life will bear fruit through my prayers and sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is his concern and not mine. It will be indecent of me to worry about that. Behind this man who threw all the last ounces of his freedom after the gospel, it's just a man in love with Jesus. Just so smitten with his Savior. He didn't care about how many people he saved. He didn't care about how effectively he used his freedom. He just loved Jesus. And this is where this starts, not with guilt, but with joy. Joy in the fact 
that our Lord Jesus, though comfortable, threw aside his heavenly position and took on the shame of the wrath of God in our place so that we could share in the benefits of his gospel. And the extent to which you find joy in him and freedom in him and your identity in him, that you'll be free to use your freedom for his gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we feel the weight of a city uh, uh, who have woken up this morning and many of them will not work in the church today. Uh, they won't even think of it. But who need to know you. They need to know your gospel. And Father, we know we have a life given from you full of good things that you want to use for your sake. And Father, we pray even with that discomfortable feeling in our gut, that you would so saturate our vision with the love of Christ, that it would loosen the grip on our own life, and that you would use us to be the bridge to eternity for the people of our city. Lord, open our heart and our mind to that person, at that place, at that time, and use us, Lord, we pray, to save. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.